Hey ladies, welcome to WTF, Women Talking Frankly, a running conversation with your hosts, Kyle and Candace. And you, about issues facing women, such as health, hormones, our looks, our libido, life, and anything in between. We promise to dig deep and get into it each episode. Welcome. We're so glad you joined us today. Hi, Candace. Hi, Kyle. Good nice morning to, you. to you. Yeah, we are doing back-to-back podcasts this week. This is kind of fun. Yeah, and it's not even stressful. No, it's not it's great. Like so it. we, um, can, as many of our listeners know, Candace has been living in Oxford, England for the last few months. And so we're doing sort of a, um, a two-country podcast. It's really fun. Um, we're getting, we're getting so good at this. I'm the tech, I'm the tech person, which is really scary, but, um, oh, well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I just have to keep tra- track of the time difference. So I know this, this is the hard, it's nine o'clock in the morning here in Oregon. And it's five o'clock in the evening. For can- so she's often having a glass of wine while I'm having my tea. So it's pretty funny. Actually, I'm um, having tea. Okay. Good for you. Good for you. <laughs> That's good. So, um, this is a really different kind of episode for us today. As many of you folks know, we started this podcast as a vehicle for women to talk about health issues that they struggle with, mostly hormonal ones, in which women often feel uh, dismissed, overlooked, underserved, and undertreated. But over the past third, three years, and we've now hit the mark of 40 episodes, which is a lot of talking, but that's not a problem for us, apparently. Um, <laughs> we have covered a wide array of topics from hormone dilemmas to exercise, heart disease, thyroid problems, pandemic, nutrition, bone health, and beyond. We have just never gotten bored or we never run out of topics. We keep saying, oh, let's talk about this. Let's talk about that. And people ask us all kinds of things too. Mm-hmm. Um, and But as women ourselves, we've bumped up against our own challenges in life. And so that's led us to new topics. Like Candace had some issues with heart and I'm, I had issues with my knees. So that, that brings us to today's topic. Candace has talked about how she was a big skier back in her youth, and she was a ski instructor, and she really tore up her those mountains with glee for decades until she had her knees pay the price. And she had several surgeries, cortisone injections, and now ultimately has sort of given up the ski life, but she's still quite an active walker and does yoga, so she's still very good. I had been um, an avid runner up to my uh, 40, and then I became a, an avid walker, race walker. Um, and I maintained that for the last 30 years. And then I introduced tennis into my life at about 58. And I'll tell you what, tennis is a fabulous sport. It keeps you young. They say nine years longer for tennis players, but it wreaks havoc on your knees. Anytime I play tennis, I look at the courts and I look around and everybody has a brace on somewhere. It's pretty funny. Um, yeah. So I ended, up, I ended up with a torn meniscus with a surgery in uh, 2020. Uh, it was a big tear. It was like two and a half inches long. I was basically told I had no options. I don't know if Dr. Our, our, our guest today might want to comment on that later. Um, I ended up with that meniscus surgery. It was back on the court and six weeks later. And then I ended up with a floating body in my left knee because I tore a piece of cartilage off. I had to have another surgery. So that was a joy. And then um, I still had pain. And my doctor said, Kyle, you have very bad arthritis. I think you could do with a stem cell shot. So I said, let's go. And so I gave me a stem cell shot and I had about 80% relief. And then I said to him, do you think we could do another one? And he said, I don't know. I've never done that before. I said, well, I'm game if you're game. And he did it. And I ended up with complete pain-free left knee for the last three years. It was pretty phenomenal. 
So then this year, I started having painful swelling in my right knee. And I was like, oh, God, here we go again. I did, wasn't a meniscus. Went to two doctors, told me um, with x-rays I had bone on bone on both knees and I would need a bilateral knee replacement. Well, I'm somebody who doesn't like to hear that kind of stuff. And I thought, how can that be? I didn't start playing tennis till late in life. I haven't run all my life. So I went to see, I I thought I'm going to do a Google search. So I searched for best knee specialists in Portland and I found Reflex Knee and I found Dr. Riggs and he's going to be our guest today. Um, And I went to see him because I thought, oh my God, I need somebody who just does knees. That sounds good to me. I went to see him, told him I was going to France. I, I went to see him in April of 2020, 2023. I was going to France for five weeks in June, I, and I was sort of desperate. I, how am I going to? I couldn't even walk without excruciating pain. My knee was swollen. Nothing was working. I tried cortisone. So I went to see him, and he did not only, uh, he looked at my x-ray, but he did, a car, he did an ultrasound on my knees and said, Kyle, you have cartilage. We don't need we don't need a bilateral knee replacement. And basically, he gave me what's called PRP therapy, and I have been without pain now for the last six months. So we invited him to to um, to be our guest today, Dr. Russell Riggs. And there's a long intro. Um, he attended the uh, Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, and then he went to work as an ER doc in a variety of ER locations. He actually was the assistant medical director of Tuality Community Hospital in Hillsboro. And I was actually out there working as a nurse practitioner. So I wonder if our paths even crossed back then. That would be fun to find out. And then he became the medical director of a large uh, hospital here in Newburgh, Oregon, which is a suburb or a a small town close to um, Portland. But when I met him, he told me he'd practiced in the ER for 25 years and he had just burned out. And he actually, and I looked at his resume, I thought, "Mm, 10 years before he stopped being an ER doc, he actually opened up a reflex knee specialist. So... Russell Riggs, welcome to our podcast. Welcome. Uh, we are so happy you're here today and you're making people's lives whole again. We'd love to hear your story, how you came to this place in your life and how you started this whole journey was just working with knees. Well, thanks for having me. It's nice uh, to be here and I have listened to your program and feel like you're bringing a lot of value to your audience. So it's a privilege to be here with you today. Uh, as far as knee pain, I never really thought about knees, um, especially about arthritis. In medical school, we were told that arthritis was, you know, I think the lecture was maybe 15, 20 minutes long. <laughs> it's kind of like it's inevitable. Everyone's going to get it. It's due to wear and tear. And I grew up in Arizona with a father, uh, my father who loved the outdoors and loved hiking. So we would go hiking all the time. And we were in the Grand Canyon hiking and I was maybe 18. uh, And he turned around and said, this is my last hike. My knees are killing me. I, I cannot do this anymore. And he didn't, he stopped basically all activities due to knee pain. He's very was a very stubborn man, didn't go seek any help or get medical care. He just pretty much stopped doing uh, the things he loved. How and old was he at that time? Do you know? He was in his 60s. I'm too young to stop. Yeah. And he basically um, gained about 75, maybe 100 pounds. Gosh. 
became a diabetic uh, and died of a heart attack at age 75. And I kind of watched him go from this very active individual into a very out of shape mm -hmm. man. Uh, and it was a, a sad kind of thing to witness. Mm -hmm. and of course, I miss him. Uh, he's passed now over 10 years ago. I didn't think much about that until I moved from Arizona, where I grew up, to Oregon because of the outdoors. I, I just love hiking. I love being active. And the outdoor opportunities here are endless. Mm -hmm. And in my early 40s, I'm 58 now, I was on a hike, on a descent, and about the second or third mile, my knees started hurting. <laughs> and oh, no. I'm, what is this? I've never had knee issues before. And that image of my father came back to me of him turning around and saying, this is my last hike. Mm. So I did a deep dive into knee pain. You know, what are the causes? What are the treatments? What is the course of most people who experience knee pain? Because I certainly did not want to follow in my father's footsteps and just stop being active. And what I found in this deep dive is knee pain, we're, we're experiencing an epidemic of it globally due to yeah. converging factors, an aging population, uh, an obesity epidemic, and an unprecedented number of knee injuries. And those three factors have just produced this incredible problem. And then I start talking to people who would be coming into the ER with knee pain, very frustrated, uh, limping, excruciating pain with every step and feeling like they have been left behind and like the medical paradigm had nothing for them. And so most people with knee pain go see their primary care provider. And then they're shunted to physical therapy. And often, unfortunately, if we don't get the symptoms under control, physical therapy can actually exacerbate some symptoms. And so people get frustrated, go back to their primary care provider, and then they're sent to an orthopedic surgery clinic where they are told, you've got arthritis. When the pain's bad enough, we'll replace the joint. And that's pretty much the conversation. And I started uh, holding focus groups with several people with knee pain uh, would buy them coffee and listen to their stories and saw this pattern of people getting lost between the diagnosis of knee arthritis and knee replacement and feeling there's really nothing in between. And in my deep dive, I found there are many effective non-surgical treatments available that just aren't being talked about. And so that's why another physician and I opened Reflex Knee Specialists. Uh, and it's turned out that there are a lot of people who are trying to avoid surgery, looking for al al alternative treatments, and who we started seeing have these remarkable uh, transformative, um, that th the treatments really are impacting their lives in positive ways. So we now have a second um, clinic in Seattle and just opened a third one down in the Phoenix area. 
and loves seeing people break out of this vicious pain cycle and being told how treatments can change their lives. So I was burning out in emergency medicine. And with this narrow focus, this niche uh, practice, I have found so much joy, so much passion. I feel like I can do this another 25 years without ever burning out. And I, it's just brought so much professional uh, fulfillment. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in the ER, you save lives, but you never get to know people because they're, you know, mm-hmm. shipped off somewhere else. And one of the greatest joys of this new practice has been getting to know people that I've now seen for years and just watch their lives be enriched and more fulfilling because now they can lead a more active life. So and it was, kind of yeah, it's an amazing background. story. And I love the fact that you came to that on a personal level. It's like Candace and I came to our work on personal levels as well. And I think when you are helping people in your work, it's such a joy to see people get better. Like you said, in the ER, you might save a life, but you'll never know what, what life you save. And I'm sure you saw a lot of lives end in the ER as well. And so this way you get to really, I mean, the impact that you had on me was in like I said to you, I was people were saying, well, just get a just get a bilateral knee replacement. And I was like, I don't think so. I think that is like a last stop Texaco type thing. You know, it's like <laughs> no, thank you. Um, and so when I went to see you, and the funny, so just to share that again, you said to me, well, Kyle, you probably have some of the worst arthritis I've ever seen. Top twenty five percent. You said I was like, oops. And he said, but the good news is you saw cartilage, and nobody had ever taken an ultrasound. And, sh- and looked at my knees. And I thought that was such an interesting technique. And then you said, and I, you took off like 65 cc's of fluid and you did the PRP on me. I thought it would be an excruciating uh, experience. I didn't feel a thing. I, there was no pain involved at all. And within two weeks, I was back on the tennis court and I could barely walk. So it's pretty profound. I had a pretty profound, and I get my experience is not the same as everybody else's. But I'm just saying, for me, it was so profound. And I just would wonder why other people are not using ultrasounds why are orthopedic surgeons only relying on knee, on x-rays and mris it seems like and what does an ultrasound offer that an mri and an x-ray does not that's a great question uh, really ultrasound evaluation is really what sets us apart and i feel like we are pioneers in that field very few people are using ultrasound for diagnosis uh and i would say less than five percent of clinics use ultrasound for even procedure, you know, needle guidance. Uh, Most injections into the knee are done blindly without any guidance. And to answer your question, I think the reason it's not more widely uh, utilized is it takes our physicians. Right now I'm training a new physician who's going to join our provider group. It's going to take her six to nine months before she's adept and skilled with ultrasound. And we have very high standards. And I think the because the learning curve is steep and the process is so long, a lot of providers, it's just too much of an undertaking for them to get excited about, uh, you know, acquiring and developing a new skill set. Some people will go to a weekend conference have an ultrasound probe, but it, it takes months before you really can 
acquire the skills that I believe are necessary to diagnose pathology in the knee. The other advantage over MRI or x-ray is when we're looking at a tendon or a ligament, we can move the knee in certain ways and stress that structure, stress that tendon to see how the fibers are reacting to that stress. So it, that's called dynamic ultrasound um, testing. And it also allows us to assess the tissue's response to treatment. So even though a patient might be feeling much improved or not, we can see how the tissues have responded to treatment. So we use ultrasound for everything. <laughs> we, we use it on all our procedures for diagnosis and for following outcomes. I'd like to ask you, um, going back to your story, um, so you, you got into knee pain, you opened a clinic, and um, were you using PRP from the beginning? And by the way, we haven't defined PRP. I don't really know what it is exactly. Um, so we need to define it and talk about it. And I'm just curious if that's what you started with, since it sounds like you've gone through an evolution of, you know, I'm curious about the in-between, all the all the procedures that you mentioned, there are so many that are possible to do between knee pain, injury, and a replacement. So yeah. did you go through some of those before you landed on this um, this new phenomenal PRP, which you're going to tell us about <laughs> what it is? Yeah, that's a great question, Candice. Uh, no, we did not start with PRP. In the deep dive into the literature and research, we saw it out there, but there were very few randomized controlled trials. It, the research was just emerging because uh, we opened back in 2011. And if you look at the uh, graph of PRP literature, I mean, it's just this steep upward curve. Uh, in the beginning, there were maybe two or three articles published a year, and now there are hundreds of PRP articles being published every year. So so tell us what it is. Yeah, we, so we awakening. <laughs> yeah, so just let us know what PRP, we know what PRP is, but I think our listeners don't. Can you tell us what PRP stands for and how it's derived? Yeah. Sure. Uh, so uh, PRP stands for platelet-rich plasma, and it's a therapy where a blood draw from the arm and, you know, just a blood collection uh, the blood is then put into a centrifuge to separate the cell types. And there are dozens of PRP systems out there. They are very different. What really matters with PRP is what cells are in the final solution. And the ideal PRP is one where you have platelets, no red cells, no white cells. And most systems have millions of red cells. And we've actually compared several PRP systems by looking at the PRP solution under a microscope. Mm -hmm. And you just see all these red cells. And red cells are damaging to cartilage. Mm -hmm. And so for years, when we started using PRP, and we didn't start till 2016, so it was five years of following the research before I was convinced, because I'm a skeptic, I only like offering to patients treatments that have strong research behind them. Uh, and I was going every year to PRP conferences. 
and learning everything I could. And I was going, not ready yet, not ready yet. And then all of a sudden, all these randomized controlled trials started being published. And I was going, okay, now we're ready to go. The ideal formulation from all this research is avoid red blood cells. And I was at a conference and I saw this small little booth and they had a little sign behind them saying, our PRP system has zero red blood cells. And I had never seen that before. I was always looking for the lowest red blood cell uh, PRP formulation. But PRP, before I found this newer system, when you looked at it, it was pink. There were so many red blood cells in it that the color was red. Uh, in some PRP systems, it looks like whole blood. There are, they just don't remove any of the red blood cells. So as wonderful as PRP is, because of this wide spectrum of what's actually being put into the joint, there's a lot of, uh, shall we just say, disparity in outcomes that are being published. And it's really hard to extract um, conclusions because there's such a wide variety of PRP systems out there. But since we started using this new system that has zero red blood cells, meaning when we look at the PRP under a microscope, we don't see any red cells. And there are very few white cells here and there. So it's mostly platelets. And that's really what you want. This system, because red cells are pro-inflammatory and white cells, before finding it, I would have to tell, like Kyle, before your treatment, I would said, you're going to hurt for a week. And you would because of those white cells and red cells producing this pro-inflammatory response. Now, as you know, you've had the treatment. I go, you might have a little ache for a day or two, and that's it. And the outcomes are much better. Uh, there's much less pain. And people get relief. Right now, I feel like it's the single best treatment option out there, even above stem cell treatments. It's interesting that you said that because I've had so many people that I said I had no pain. They go, oh my God, I had so much. They didn't go to see you, obviously. They went to other clinics. They said, oh my God, I had excruciating pain for like a week. I'm like, okay, my knee was, you saw it. It was massive. I thought for sure I was going to have, and it was inflamed. It was painful to touch. And I thought for sure I was going to have that. I, I was waiting for it. I was like, okay, Kyle, just be ready. And I was like, and I felt bad telling people it didn't. It's like people who said, oh, my labor was so easy. You're like, well, screw you. You know, you know, <laughs> but you know, I still don't understand what we're talking about here. Platelets are, can we define platelets and what are you actually injecting into the knee? So this is, you know, I'm a newcomer to this. So you got to glad, Candace, that you're saying, let's push pause. So that's a very good question. You know, back when I was in medical school, uh, platelets were thought to have one function. So platelets are a component of our blood. And platelets' main function is hemostasis, meaning clotting. So when your blood is drawn, there's a little hole in the vein. As soon as the needle's removed, platelets are what come and plug that hole and repair that hole. Uh, so the only function. 25, 30 years ago was thought to be clotting. What we have found over the past 15 years is that platelets are like the conductors of the symphony of healing. 
Without platelets, there is no healing potential. So cartilage, which lines uh, the ends of bones that articulate with each other, has no blood flow, therefore no platelets, therefore no healing potential. So any cartilage damage is permanent. There's no going back. So platelets uh, or platelet-rich plasma is basically taking the blood, concentrating the platelets, and putting them into an environment where platelets generally aren't seen. So when you put it into the knee joint, these platelets go to the cartilage, they detect any damaged tissue, that's what activates them. And if you look at pictures of platelets in their nascent, unactivated state, they're very small and round. Then like kind of those blowfish that kind of puff out with all these spikes, when they're activated, the most common activation is damaged, damaged tissue. Like when they're going across that vein after a blood draw, they detect it. They're activated. They become sticky. They start sticking to each other and form this little dome around that damaged area. And they control that microenvironment. They, re they uh, release growth factors and healing factors into that microenvironment. And that's what is the, those are the healing factors. So any damaged tissue in the body that has blood flow will heal because of the platelets and the factors they release. So PRP into a joint is basically transplanting platelets to a space and tissue that normally don't see platelets, if that makes sense. So, so you, if something you can't change the cartilage, you're saying you can't replace the cartilage. So how is are the platelets reducing the pain and promoting healing, is it just in the joint space then? Uh, is, is what's happening? Because the cartilage is still the same amount of cartilage that you've had. Correct. So really the main um, effect of the platelets being put into the joint is these factors they release line up with the cell, the cells lining the joint, and reprogram that cell to start producing healthier joint fluid. So in arthritis, the joint fluid is very unhealthy. It's, it's uh, the chains of hyaluronic acid become shorter and shorter, so there's less and less cushioning. Uh, and it's really tilted uh, in a big way towards pro-inflammatory instead of this kind of equilibrium. And in that state of chronic inflammation, all tissues exposed to chronic inflammation break down over time, including cartilage, which is a really resilient tissue. But it's kind of like soaking anything in battery acid for, for years, the tissue starts to break down. So what PRP does is basically reprogram the joint to start producing a much healthier joint fluid with longer chains of hyaluronic acid, more cushioning and protection to the cartilage, and the effects last six to 12 months, depending on the levels of inflammation. You had, Kyle, very high levels of inflammation, and that's why you needed a couple of treatments to kind of get everything under control. Uh, others, uh, like myself, I have very few symptoms in my knees, maybe a little stiffness now and then, and I still get treated 
on a regular basis for a preventative approach. Because if there's chronic inflammation, there's going to be cartilage breakdown. So I view it as a way to kind of put the brakes on the process, slow the progression of damage until a cure is found. Because right now there is no cure for arthritis. So can I ask, um, for, doesn't, so it sounds like if you have damaged cartilage, you have tears, you've had scarring, all of that that goes on in the knee, um, this could be very helpful. But if you're someone like me who, I mean, it, and then there, I'm speaking for many people in the, in the days of the skier, uh, we had, there was a guy in Aspen who operated on everybody and it seemed like everyone had their cartilage removed. So I had my cartilage removed from my knee when I was 23 years old. And that wasn't the deal that I thought I was going in with. I thought I was getting a torn meniscus repaired or trimmed. And I woke up to him telling me that my the cartilage in there was like toothpaste, and so he took it all out. So now, and and even in my 30s, I was told, oh, you have the knees of a 75-year-old. Well, now I'm 75, I'm st and I'm walking, but, you know, I can't, obviously, I can't ski anymore. I can't even ride a bike because I can't. I can't move my my knee is locked. So I'm curious about how this it does it's not I remember over the years I was always looking for where is there a way to get some cartilage replacement? Like people were talking about rooster rooster collagen was being injected and there were all kinds of things. So how is this can this help in that regard when you're talking about long-term loss? And no cartilage to repair. I mean, there's nothing for the PRP to get its get its bangs into and start fixing. There's a lot to unpack in that question. Uh, first is, is the surgery. Uh, they it used to be a very common one of the most common orthopedic procedures was an arthroscopic cleanup of the joint. Mm -hmm. uh, where they would just go and trim any little flaps or defects in the cartilage. If the meniscus was starting to fray, they would re remove that as well. And as far as the cartilage cleanup, uh, now multiple studies over the past decade have shown there's no utility. Uh, in fact, people get worse because you're removing cushioning tissue yeah and so you're decreasing the amount of cushion between the femur and the the tibia and so the the joint wears out even faster after that procedure and the same with these meniscal surgeries uh, today the most common surgical procedure performed in the united states is partial meniscal uh removal and there That's are so many studies showing that this does not is not necessary Ugh. and by having that surgery it doubles the risk of needing knee replacement down the road if you have two meniscal surgeries that number goes up to 5x you have five times the the likelihood of needing a knee replacement and so what lots of people aren't told and they're very upset when they come talk to us is that that surgery is removing cushioning tissue. The meniscus, even if it's got a defect or flap in it, it's kind of like if you were kneeling on a cement floor in your garage on your bare knee, you, you're going to hurt very quickly. 
But even if you take a tattered rag that's oil stained and looks terrible and put under the knee, you're going to be able to nail a lot longer because there's that cushioning there. So the, the research is very clear, at least by my reading, that these surgeries most of the time are unnecessary and are actually doing more harm than good because they're basically accelerating the damage that follows. And unless you're having locking where a meniscal flap is between the bones and you can't straighten the knee or bend the knee, we highly recommend doing nothing <laughs> is better than going in to have that surgery. Sure. Uh, things that we have seen help for meniscal tears, you can wear a brace for a few weeks that offloads the meniscus and lets it kind of cool down. PRP stimulates proliferation of meniscal tears so you can get some stabilization across the defect. Oh, I see. And the pain comes down. So I've seen a couple of meniscal tears actually where I see them very clearly on ultrasound and then after treatment, I cannot find them but they've all been people in their 20s. I've never seen anyone north of 30 who has had a healed meniscal tear. That's what so, I, by my, tear, by my doctor, who I trusted, um, he said over 40 or over 50, especially, um, a meniscal tear will not repair itself. And that's why he trimmed mine, whether it was necessary or not. I don't know. My knee was very stiff. I couldn't straighten it. But um yeah, and I'm hearing that more and more now. Do you think that people for so first can you explain what a meniscus is to those of us who may not know that are listening and what its purpose is? Um, and then is it true that an older person can have healing of the meniscus without having to have it trimmed? Great question. So the menisci, we have two in each knee, are these kind of semicircular uh structures made of fibrocartilage that act as shock absorbers between the bones. So when we're walking, the meniscus is really what's dissipating most of the load going through the knee joint. And they help stabilize uh, the knee uh, and cushion and protect the cartilage that underlies uh, the menisci. Uh, so removing any of that tissue is, you know, removing basically the ability to dissipate that load a meniscal tear uh, the way the meniscal um, anatomy is there are all these fibers that run in kind of like this looped uh, formation to dissipate the load throughout the meniscus when there's a tear that ability is lost so more force is being transmitted into the bone instead of being dissipated by the meniscus so they can cause a lot of pain when you injure the meniscus, uh, but the majority of meniscal tears are degenerative, meaning people aren't even aware of it. It's either due to chronic inflammation, like we talked about before, the tissue breaks down. All you have to do is step out of your vehicle, step off, uh, you know, off a curb, and you can get a little degenerative tear because the tissue is weakened. Mm -hmm. If you're younger, the meniscus is strong, and you're out on the court playing tennis and you go and you kind of uh, plant and pivot in a forceful way, you can get an acute tear of the meniscus. The research shows that if you do physical therapy and no surgery at six months, the outcomes are the same. 
In Finland, they did a very interesting study that I don't think would ever get approved here in the U.S., but they took a group of people for their controls. They took everyone to the operating room, but only half of them actually had the arthroscopic removal of the damaged meniscus. The other half had, you know, they were putting instruments up against their knee. They were moving them around. They had the IV. They Everything was the same, but nothing went into the joint. And at six months, 12 months, two years, no difference wow. in outcomes. So to answer your question, no, there's not healing. But in about six weeks after a meniscal injury, when your knee's stiff and painful, there are two paths. You go get your MRI, you go have your surgery, and at six weeks, you go, I'm better. Or you go to physical therapy, and at six weeks, I'm better. So we recommend avoiding that surgery unless you cannot bend or straighten your knee and just help people get through that painful period and tell them what to expect week by week and watch them get better. You can walk around with a meniscal tear after six to eight weeks without pain. Cool. And can you tell us how, I mean, it's interesting. I always like to wonder, how was this um, therapy discovered? How was the use of platelet-rich plasma um, discovered for joint issues? Yeah, you know, it was over the course of years um, where, like I alluded to, the research was showing there's more to platelets than just blood clotting. And once they were identified as being involved in the healing process, they started identifying these factors, these growth factors that platelets release. And as they discovered that, they were going, this is helping heal these type tissues. And uh, the veterinarian uh, world caught on to this research and they started injecting um, whole blood because they knew there was something in the blood that was uh, accelerating healing into racehorses with injured ligaments or tendons and saw that they did much better and they healed much faster. So uh, the veterinarians were way ahead on the PRP and, and they use it in horses and dogs and uh, it's very widely used in their space. But then the research just came uh, to point out that platelets are accelerators of healing and necessary for healing. And if you concentrate them and put them into a tissue like a damaged, a damaged tendon or ligament or a very inflamed joint, it really helps improve that environment and kind of jumpstart the healing process. And assuming that a joint is a joint is a joint, is PRP good for most of the joints in the body or are there limitations on what you can use it for? Like if someone has a spinal, I've heard a lot of people now with having some spinal uh, degenerative disc disease, things like, you know, worse. I know that you specialize in knees, but I'm just curious. I'm sure you are do, reading the literature, know what else it's good for and what it's not, and what, and what is it not good for? Yeah, uh, so it's being used widely. <laughs> and, you know, they're even now using PRP instead of Botox, like facial. I don't know if you've heard of the vampire facial, mm -mm. but it's basically PRP stimulates collagen growth. Ooh. So you kind of get a loss of wrinkles, kind of a more full, instead of fillers, people are getting PRP. 
And at these conferences, PRP conferences I go to, a lot of them are dermatologists or plastic surgeons wow. uh, who are doing PRP everywhere. They're even doing it for hair uh, <laughs> regrowth. Uh, they're definitely doing it for spinal uh, disc disease. Uh, all joints, you know, shoulders, hips are real big. Uh, wrist, hand, foot, ankle. So I've even uh, used it a few times on elbow, like tennis elbow um, or plantar fasciitis. Wow. That's, you know, not responsive to anything else. And they've come in after eight months of pain, trying everything, the splints, the PT, still in pain. And one uh, treatment of PRP, at least the two or three I've treated, have had complete resolution of their symptoms. So um, it's pretty remarkable. It's, it's basically harnessing the body's innate healing properties and kind of concentrating those healing factors into a targeted area. I think we're going to see more and more. I think the next step, back to Candace's question about cartilage uh, regrowth, is what can you combine PRP with that directs cartilage regeneration? And, you know, there's a lot of hype out there about stem cells right now. Uh, we offered stem cell treatments for several years with good outcomes, but the research has now shown that two or three PRP treatments is the same as a stem cell treatment and it's about half the cost it's less invasive you can kind of customize it to what the patient needs do they need two do they need three um so because of this newer research we are no longer offering stem cell uh, treatments because we just recommend prp your cells uh, doing the work for you um the most common type of stem cell therapies being offered use bone marrow, where they drill into the pelvis and take out extract bone marrow, uh, and then concentrate that, and then inject that back into the site. The research is pretty good, but not superior to PRP. Wow. The other is adipose tissue, so harvesting fat tissue, uh, and injecting that into the joint. We saw great results using adipose. Uh, patients never minded losing a little of their fat <laughs> cells that they were saying, take Can we more. Donate? We donate. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, right. But it's invasive. It was a long procedure. It took two hours to perform. And now we just say, come in for two or three PRP treatments at half the cost. And there's not all this rec the recovery phase after that was really something else for two weeks just walking in slow motion that was really hard for people to to comply with so we just feel like right now the best treatment is prp with stem cell it's going to be what other ingredient do we combine with those stem cells to drive it down the cartilage regenerative pathway today there are treatments for cartilage regeneration. Well, when I say regeneration, it's a two-step procedure where you go in, they remove some of your cartilage from the back of your femur where the cartilage doesn't use that much or doesn't uh, participate in the weight bearing. They grow it in the lab. You come back and then they take your cartilage, which has been growing, 
and they use it to patch any holes or defects. Oh, that's amazing. So that is going on. It's contraindicated, meaning not uh, used in people with osteoarthritis. <laughs> it's only if you have a, a cartilage defect, uh, because with osteoarthritis, it's this chronic inflammation that putting, even if it's new cartilage there, it's just going to start breaking down and, and it doesn't hold well in that environment of chronic inflammation. What if so, you use PRP? It seems like if you use if you use a PRP with that, would that be sometimes it seems like that would make sense. I I would recommend PRP with any other surgery. Like uh, you know, oral surgeons have been using PRP for dental implants with oh. excellent results. There's also something called platelet-rich fibrin PRF, which is PRP, but instead of in liquid form, it's in more of a gel form. And they put that in the cavity for these dental implants. And a oral surgeon friend of mine was saying it's it's remarkable and showing pictures. One patient bruised, swollen, you know, two days after the procedure. And if you use PRP or PRF, no bruising, no pain, that the patients do much better. So with ACL surgeries, meniscal surgeries, I would recommend if you're going to have surgery, have them take a little blood with a quality PRP system and use it. Do you see a difference? Like one of the things I thought about was, you know, as we age, I wonder if our platelets aren't as robust at providing healing. Do you see a difference in age-related PRP effectiveness based on or somebody's underlying health? And is there a and, and in conjunction with that question, is it possible if somebody doesn't have high-quality platelets, can you use the platelets of somebody else? I know you have to worry about transfusion reactions, but I'm wondering, can people use other people's platelets that are healthier if they don't have healthy enough ones? That's a great question. Uh, I've never seen that, and I would be reluctant to put someone else's platelets into another human just because uh, you, there's that risk of having a, an intense uh, immune response. But as far as aging, the research is very interesting. It's assumed that platelets aren't as robust, and there is research to that, that would kind of lead one to believe that. But I have found over the years, what's more important than age is diet and activity levels. If someone's sedentary, out of shape, overweight, they don't have as good of a response as someone who's active and eating right. So I, we really feel it's important to look at every person as an individual and not just the joint or what's going on in the joint. It's kind of like, what are you eating? What is your activity level? What, you know, let, let's look at the bigger picture. People who are out playing tennis all the time are going to have much healthier knees than someone who's sitting at a desk all day. Interesting. That's cool. And what about like, this used to be so common to do, as you were saying, um, you know, to remove cartilage and to do these arthroscopies. So you obviously the your practice must be with younger people or people that have have not had cartilage removed because there's at this moment in time in the in the development of this process it's not really regenerative regenerative yeah that that's true it's 
it's not regenerative. It's basically pulling the brakes, pushing mm-hmm. pause on the progression. Uh, the average age of people we see are people in their 60s and 70s. Um, I'd say 50s through 70s uh, is kind of our the bulk of our patients. We see some teenage athletes who have had tendon or ligament strains, but they don't have arthritis. They might have a meniscal injury, but the bulk of people uh, that we see have osteoarthritis, which is the most common cause of knee pain in the world, worldwide. And although there's no cure, there's no cartilage regeneration yet for this, this group, they want to remain active. They want to uh, avoid knee replacement surgery if they can. And that's basically what the treatments do is they alleviate pain, improve the quality of the joint fluid so there's more cushioning and protection. And we try to help people reach their optimum, uh, optimal levels of activity. Because if you're sitting around due to knee pain, it's very common to start gaining weight. In fact, the average weight gain in a person with knee arthritis is 42 pounds. Whoa. That's average. Whoa. And we've had several patients come in who are really overweight because it hurts to move. And if we get them up and walking, this one uh, patient that we've been seeing for uh, now 10 years was told he needed bilateral knee replacements, uh, had bone on bone both sides, hobbling around, um, and now he walks 8 to 10 miles a week. Uh, He's lost over 100 pounds, and he says, I feel better than I have felt in decades. So it's basically, even though there's no cure, and this is kind of a temporizing measure, it's really important to remain active. And what we see as a byproduct of that is people no longer need insulin or their diabetes medication because they lose all this weight or their high blood pressure no longer need the medication or they're chewing up ibuprofen, Advil, a leave like candy every day. That's really harmful to the gut lining. It's really harm, uh, potentially harmful to the kidneys. And now they don't need those medications anymore. So there are lots of benefits to getting someone out of this rut of this vicious cycle of knee pain where they just are inactive. So activity is so important for overall health. And that's kind of how we view it. And the knee, both of you have had knee pain, you know, it can take you out. It can really limit your activities and people don't realize it until they're going, I can't walk. I can't move. I can't do anything. It's amazing. You, you know, you hear about it before, like all of us, I think you hear somebody talk about back pain or knee pain. You're like, oh, yeah, whatever. Then you experience and you're like, <laughs> OK, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I was not empathetic. I didn't get it. Um, I have two questions. One is um, you used ozone therapy with me. That was a 30. So your explanation was that it's 30 percent more effective. It makes PRP more effective. Can you explain what ozone is and how it works? And then my second question is. Cortisone injections. It seems like cortisone injections seems to be a first line therapy for so many people when they have joint pain. How effective is it? What are the downsides? What are the upsides? And what's the limit? How many can you get? 
I'll start with cortisone because it is, as you said, it is the most common treatment for knee pain uh, administered uh, in the United States. And the reason that is, is because it's been used for decades and patients get relief, temporary relief, usually a few weeks, maybe at most a couple of months. But they, you know, you take someone who's hobbling, every step hurts, and they get cortisone, and within a day, they're walking again. They, it, it's like magic to them. And because of this kind of reinforced cycle of uh, I'm hurting, I need cortisone, it has continued to be administered as a first-line treatment. But when you look at the research, it's kind of disturbing, especially from my perspective, because it's so commonly administered, is cortisone is damaging to cartilage. Mm. It's chondrotoxic. And that's why it's limited on how many treatments you can have, because the more frequent you have cortisone, the more rapidly the cartilage will degenerate. So it actually accelerates the arthritis uh, course and shortens the time between when you'll need a knee replacement. So although there's temporary relief, and I get why people are, you know, touting how great cortisone can be for them, uh, it's damaging to cartilage. So treatments of cortisone into a bursa, like if someone has bursitis, that's not into a joint, that can be helpful. But even around an injured tendon, it can weaken tissue. And there are potential systemic effects like a rise in blood sugars, uh, a, a kind of mitigation, a mitigating effect on the immune system, so it can increase risk of infection. Uh, but lots of people don't understand or realize there are better treatments because cortisone does nothing to change the joint fluid quality. And both hyaluronic acid, which you, uh, Candace, referenced the rooster comb, the first hyaluronic acid injections, uh, the, the HA for sure, all came from rooster comb. But some of those proteins, avian proteins, found their way into joints and people would have a, a really strong uh, adverse response where their knee, their joint would uh, kind of blow up, become red, it looked infected. Uh, they were kept in the hospital until the cultures came back negative. So that's why we're not uh, hearing about it anymore. <laughs> yeah. So now it's all made by bacterial uh, fermentation. They just feed the genetic code for HA production to bacteria and they just produce it all day long. Uh, and so we don't see those, re uh, those responses um, after HA treatment, but both HA and PRP change the biochemistry in the joint and improve the quality of the joint fluid. Ozone is a newer therapy. There are now four randomized controlled trials showing clear benefit. And, and what they did is they took patients and just gave them HA and then get patients HA with ozone or patients just getting PRP or PRP with ozone. And in all these studies, they show a a more robust response to treatment if ozone is added. And with PRP in particular, 
they measured the growth factors being released by the platelets in just the PRP group and in the ozone group, there was a 30% increase in those growth factor levels. Oh. So for a pretty low cost, you can get a potentially large um, benefit from having ozone added. Some people are using ozone alone. We don't because it's so, so short-lived. It only lasts a week or two, might give you some temporary relief. Um, so we always recommend it be combined with something for longer term outcomes. What is the ozone actually doing? It actually irritates the joint enough because it is an irritant. It's uh, kind of like, uh, I don't know how many in your audience have heard of prolotherapy, but prolotherapy has been used. It's basically sugar dextrose, uh, in a solution injected into a joint to create this very intense, as patients have described it, um, reaction. When the joint is kind of irritated, it recruits all these uh, other cell types to start shutting down inflammation, start shutting down pain. So ozone is slightly, uh, a slight irritant just enough where you're recruiting other cells to start releasing all these growth factors and healing factors. Uh, so how does HA or hyaluronic acid treatment compare to PRP? Great question. And, and can you um, use them in conjunction with each other or no? There have been many head-to-head -head trials and PRP comes out on top. Yeah. So PRP is better. However, uh, we still use more HA than PRP because HA, hyaluronic acid, is covered by most, it's covered by Medicare, it's covered by most insurance companies, and these newer treatments like PRP and ozone are not, so they're out of pocket costs. Didn't you right. say that the PRP promotes the proliferation of, of hy hy hyaluronic acid in the joint? So it's yeah. kind of a precursor? Yes, and both HA and PRP function that way by reprogramming the cells lining the joint to start producing healthier joint fluid characterized by longer chains of hyaluronic acid produced by yourself. Any therapy in the joint only stays in the joint for a few days. So it's really the reprogramming of the cells that provides the long term benefit. So HA. You, uh, most studies show benefit four to six months from an HA uh, series and PRP it's six to 12 months, depending on how much inflammation is in the joint. Do you see, I mean, obviously what, um, what people are concerned about is the cost of PRP because right now it is an out of pocket cost. And I noticed that, like you were saying, I know a friend of mine's hus husband went to uh, the local academic university here, Oregon Health Science University. They were running a special 350 for a PRP treatment. And I said, be careful. I mean, it doesn't mean, it, of course, not all PRPs are created equal. Just because it's less expensive, does we have to be careful. Does, is, are they using a good system? So I think people are desperate, though, and, and, and money can be a challenge, especially right now. So I'm just curious, do you anticipate the cost coming down and or insurance covering it eventually based on the studies that are now showing it's effective. 
I do. I think within the next couple of years, insurance companies will offer it because with HA, it's usually a series of treatments, three to five, one week apart. So you're looking at three to five visits versus one, and then waiting six to eight weeks and having maybe a second treatment. So insurance companies will save a lot of money uh, if they start covering PRP and say instead of HA, try PRP first because it's going to be a more cost-effective treatment in the long run. Uh, the reason I think they're dragging their feet is, like we talked about in the early part of this discussion, is when you look at the research, this study shows PRP doesn't work. This study shows it does. It's because there's so many different PRP systems out there. And some people, when I heard $350 for PRP, I go, they're not using a system. I'll bet they're just drying blood, putting yeah. the, the tube in a centrifuge, which will separate out. And then they put a needle down into the plasma and draw up and trying to get the platelets, which are the lightest cells. So they're on top of all the red blood cells, but you end up getting millions of red blood cells in that PRP sample. So one of the things, if your audience, anyone out there is going to get PRP, it's the color that really matters. Is it pink? Is it red? If so, it's full of red cells. And I would not recommend that treatment. Okay, that's great. So to ask, though, I mean, there are people that aren't are going to be in different parts of the country. They're not going to know if the PRP solution is pink or red. What should they be asking to make sure that it's the right, the good system? If there's not a reflex knee in the in the neighborhood, <laughs> they, um, how do they protect themselves from a bad treatment? Yeah, that's really a great question, and I wish I had a great answer. Yeah. I would just say, you know, doing Absolutely. due diligence and research is important, and just asking them what which system they use. But we have not found a system that even comes close to what I call next generation cell separation, which we're using. The brand name of our system is TropoCells, T-R-O-P-O-C-E-L-L-S. And it was um, designed by a hematologist who had worked 40 years uh, in, working with blood in Israel uh, and he designed this system where it is perfect for trapping all the red cells under this gel layer, keeping all the platelets on top, whereas most systems don't have a gel layer separating the cells. It's just that the platelets are sitting right on top of the red cells, so it's really hard to get pl enough platelets without all the red cells. Mm. But with the gel, you can just pull all the platelets out, and no red cells come because they're all trapped. And, you know, 90 plus percent of white cells are trapped as well. So it's an elegant system. If a better system comes out, we will, you know, change to that immediately. But right now, I would just say the it really matters what the final solution is. There are some really big companies uh, promoting their PRP. But when you look under a microscope, it's either there are not enough platelets because you need a billion platelets to get the impact you want. Over a billion doesn't matter, but at least a billion and you want minimal red cells. 
And most systems, if they don't have a lot of red cells, they don't have enough platelets. If they have adequate platelets, they have tons of red cells. So it's a problem if you don't have a gel barrier with a good separation technique. There are some knockoffs out there using gel, but when we look under the microscope, red cells are everywhere. So they didn't quite get the separation. Is there any research done? Um, I mean, you said there's a lot of research, but curiously from the Israeli scientists that created this system that you're really pleased with, did he do any studies? He really, uh, they, they've done a few. Um, but those in our show notes, if you could send us one or a reference. Yeah. yeah. That'd be great. So when someone, okay, so let's say somebody comes to see you and they are in excruciating pain and you do an ultrasound on them. And what makes you decide that I really can't help this person and they really do need to go for it? Like you, you told me knee replacement was the absolute last stop because once you do a knee replacement that there's the PRP, nothing will be helpful at that point in time. Who makes that determination? I mean, obviously, people make determinations all the time, probably prematurely, and some people. How do you make that determination? Like, I really think you probably are at that stage. Yeah, so amount of cartilage left. You know, if there's no cartilage and they are hobbling around, I just, you know, it's always finding out what their goals are because some people just are either not a surgical candidate or they are adamant saying, I don't want surgery. I have a lot of those patients who I have actually recommended knee replacement saying, I think this is your best choice, who are saying, I do not want that surgery. But more frequently, the most frequent is saying, let's try these non-surgical treatments and see what happens. If you go through, you know, two or three rounds and you're getting better and you're becoming more active, then you're in the driver's seat. You can choose if, you know, when to have the surgery, if if you want the surgery. It just gives the patient, it empowers the patient to make the decisions rather than having the pain, you know, kind of make the choices for them. So, so I recommend people go through a trial of two or three rounds of treatment before making that decision, unless they absolutely have no cartilage or they have bad alignment. So knocked knees, uh, what we call a valgus alignment, they don't do as well. Um, so it, it, there are lots of factors. If they've got uh, chronic inflammation of the lining of the joint called synovitis, um, if they've got a lot of fluid that keeps coming back and isn't decreasing in size with treatment, uh, then I start saying, I don't think you're responding as well as we would like. So sometimes it is, I believe, the right answer. But I feel like in today's society, knee replacement or joint replacement is like the default. It's like, oh, I'm having pain. I'm going to go get my knee replaced. And what a lot of people don't know is 25% of people who have their knees replaced still have pain. Yeah. or decreased range of motion and they're upset and they're unhappy and that's a big number one out of four now three out of four the majority love it they have a new lease on life they're much more active they're like freed from this kind of hijacked uh, state of living but 25 percent of people still having pain and up to 30 percent being dissatisfied after knee replacement 
are pretty big numbers compared to hips. Hips, the people do really well. Uh, there are fewer complications, much better outcomes. But knees, uh, we're not quite there where you go, you're guaranteed to have a great outcome. No, so, I so Kyle's knee is how how old is Kyle's knee now? She's had she's had this PRP injection and it's repaired her damaged cartilage. So are we talking about younger cartilage or like if it's been renewed? Well, how would we think of it as an anti-aging approach if if cartilage that was damaged has now been rejuvenated, repaired, renewed? Isn't that like having younger knees to play tent to go back on the courts and play your hardest game? Yeah, unfortunately, no one, including Kyle's uh, cartilage, is being regenerated or renewed. It's basically the joint environment is what is being re renewed. More uh, supportive. Okay. More supportive cartilage once it's damaged. Um, it's damaged. So it, it's unfortunate we don't have a great cartilage regeneration yet, but there is so much research, Candace, okay. right now out there on they're using some stuff from coral reefs that uh, they believe are going to drive cartilage regeneration. There have been many animal studies showing cartilage regeneration. They haven't translated to human trials yet. But I think within the, the next decade, we are going to see curative therapies oh, wow. for this disease. That's amazing. So in the interim, for people who are having knee pain and they're doing therapy, let's talk about, and you mentioned this early on in the, in the podcast today, you talk about lifestyle and you talk about nutrition and you talk about exercise. What are some of the things that people can do for themselves? I know that you said you've mentioned to me before you're not an expert in supplements, but yet you do know about some. What are some of the things people can do for their own lifestyle that can improve their function and, and decrease the chance for further injury and inflammation? Such a great question. And if there's anything, any message I would like to get out there, it would be number one is walk a minimum of 10 minutes a day recommended 20 minutes a day walking is essential for joint health cartilage is what we call a mechanical sensitive tissue if it's not being loaded the cells don't do as well so the cells stay in a healthier state if they are compressed and loaded on a regular basis so daily walking is great for the knees and lots of people with knee arthritis are afraid that activity is just going to wear the joint down sooner, but it's the opposite is true. It's if you don't remain active, the joint's going to deteriorate at a faster rate. Number two is avoid processed food, added sugars, and basically carbohydrates. If you look at carb counts and they're high, it's not good for the system. Uh, I could talk a lot about carbohydrate metabolism because it is a, a big deal in our society. Most people think fats are the enemy and it's really carbs and added sugars. So anything that's highly processed, if it's in a box, if it's coming out of a can, if it's packaged, look at the labels and avoid added sugars or carbohydrates. 
uh, or limit them extremely. Uh, and then as far as supplements, omega-3s are anti-inflammatory, and that's found in fish oil. So I um, recommend a high-quality fish oil product. When we talk about supplements, it's an unregulated domain. Mm-hmm. No one is checking to see if what you say on your label is actually what the patient is getting. So there is pharmaceutical grade supplements, and that's where they have allowed a third party to come in and test their product in a lab to see exactly what's in it. And we only recommend pharmaceutical grade. A very um, great brand for fish oil is Nordic Naturals. Mm -hmm. Um, That's what we recommend. Uh, They are a high quality uh, company and they produce a high quality product. And then glucosamine and chondroitin, uh, there are many studies showing benefit, but like PRP, there are also many studies showing little to no benefit. So I tell people it might help. It's probably uh, not going to harm you. Uh, There's good research behind ginger. There's good research behind turmeric. Um, So if you're not using those in your cooking or food, you can take them as supplements as well. Vitamin D deficiency has been um, associated with a more rapid progression of arthritis. And here in the Northwest, especially during this time of year when we don't get much sunshine, I feel like uh, vitamin D may be beneficial. Can you comment on MSM? I mean, MSM is the oral form of DMSO. And it, when you mentioned veterinary medicine before, I know a lot of studies come from animals that, that get extrapolated to humans. And when I was a brand new nurse, I was working at OHSU and they were doing DMSO. We were doing DMSO IV therapy for Olympic athletes that came to the OHSU. And it was very effective. And I know that oral MSM is many athletes take it. I take it myself now and it's supposed to help with inflammation. Can you comment on that? It does, and there's good research behind it. And in fact, uh, we offer that in a topical salve that has MSM in it. A lot of patients will confide in me that they actually are using DMSO. They go to the vet (laughs) store or whatever and pick it up, but they're using it because it's so effective. Yeah, I know. The the limiting factor, I believe, was the garlic breath from it. (laughs) And a metallic taste in your mouth. I remember one of the first time I used to use that all the time because I had to ski. I had to, uh, that was my job. So I, I used to use it and it was that metallic taste, but oh my God, the relief, it was instant. I know. Yeah. What about CBD? Um, CBD, a lot of people, I mean, I know CBD in like, uh, I have a, a cream that I put on and it has CBD in it. Is, do you know anything about, I know there's a lot of studies on that now with inflammation and nerve and nerve pain and nerve regeneration. Yeah. Uh, Unfortunately, the research isn't showing as much benefit as I'm hearing from patients who use it. Patients tell me they get so much relief of, again, with a topical CBD uh, or taking it oral. But when the research studies are, the ones that are being published are showing not as robust of a response. I don't know if it's the the type of CBD, because you really need a pure extract to, I believe, get the best effect. We offer a salve with uh, CBD in it that patients rave about. 
uh, but we use a very pure form of it. So again, when you look at studies, it's like, what exactly was being used? How does it differ from what other people might be taking? Um, one last comment on when you're saying, what can people do yeah. for themselves? Um, I would say if you have excess weight, it's really tough on the joints. And we used to think that obesity was just increasing the load being transferred through joints, and that's why they do worse. But a lot of research has come out on adipose tissue is like a huge hormonal factory producing pro-inflammatory factors being released into the bloodstream on a chronic ongoing uh, time period. And that chronic inflammation has now been linked to four chronic diseases, arthritis, which we've talked about, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and dementia. So all these pro-inflammatory factors in the bloodstream going to all our tissues are doing more harm than people potentially realize. Uh, so there's lots of studies showing that even losing 10 pounds can do a ton of, that provide a lot of benefit to patients with knee pain. So we try to get people out of pain so they can become more active. And then we kind of target if in patients who it's important that we do this is now let's start getting some of this weight off because it's not only going to decrease the load with every step. I'm 150 pounds. Uh, it's 4X uh, with every step. So about 600 pounds. I'm a smaller guy. People who weigh 200 pounds, it's 800 pounds every step. And most Americans walk two to three million steps a year. That's a lot of force over time that the knee or other weight-bearing joints are having to uh, deal with. So weight gain is really... Uh, really not a good thing. <laughs> I, thought for many reasons, I thought you were going to say too that um, it, excess weight is also associated with increased risk for cancers as well. Many Probably because of these pro-inflammatory factors right. that they're just now starting to peel back. Um, but study after study is showing how adverse adipose tissue is mm -hmm. and how important a healthy gut microbiome is. And so a fiber, high fiber diet or fiber supplements, I highly recommend a very inexpensive one. I put it in my coffee every morning. It's called Inulin. It's like insulin without the S. Mm. Uh, it's about 30 bucks from Amazon and it's not digested or absorbed into our system. But the bacteria in our colon break it down and it keeps them healthy and thriving. And I would say avoid antibiotics if you can, because that kind of wipes out your gut microbiome. Um, but a healthy diet, high in fiber, low carbs, avoid uh, added sugars to anything and daily walking and then selective supplements, like you said, MSM, ginger, turmeric, fish oil, chondroitin, glucosamine would be kind of on top of the list. I think that's what people can do to kind of protect themselves. 
Mm-hmm. Since Excellent. we are a podcast for women mostly, although I do know that do some men do listen, um, what are the differences between men and women in terms of hormones? And um, as you know, we are proponents of if women can take postmenopausally take uh, bioidentical hormones. I know there's a lot of uh, anti-inflammatory properties of certain hormones. Can you comment on that? I, I am happy to. Estrogen is protective against joint damage. So postmenopausal women who are not on hormone replacement therapy start having uh, sometimes pretty, you know, like they go through menopause and then all of a sudden they start having joint problems. So the, the estrogen is kind of like the protector. And once it's gone, joint health starts to deteriorate. So arthritis for that reason is more common in women than men more commonly need knee replacement uh, and just don't do as well overall because loss of that protecting estrogen. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's amazing. It's happy to hear you say that because we're proponents of bioidentical hormone replenishment for sure. And stress, like we, well, one of the things, on Dr. Riggs, maybe you don't notice that, that we do, we measure cortisol levels, Candice and I both in saliva throughout the day, and we can actually measure um, the level of stress that people are under. And too much cortisol, like you said, is going to create some joint degradation as well. Even though it's not going right into the joint, I would imagine that's too much, too much stress would also cause some joint damage. Definitely. And it helps kind of sustain that chronic inflammation systemically um so anything that reduces chronic inflammation is 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 will have benefit wow this has been such an amazing conversation way more than i ever imagined when i first asked you (laughs) (laughs) i feel like i've learned so much i feel like this is like a like a you know joint uh uh you know uh, master class Well, you know, also just to say, you were saying in the very beginning that knee injuries are far more common. You you mentioned the three factors that are contributing to knee pain and injury. And I found that interesting. You know, why is that? But if that is the case, then obviously, and maybe it is because of the obesity and the inflammation in our bodies and the stress levels and all of that conspiring against you know our joints um that makes it all the more important to understand the you know how it how these how these parts of our bodies work and what they respond to and how we can keep them in good shape because really your your prp is it's it's a support i see it as support for you know for people who are active but aging and want to remain so want to remain active and create a a healthier lifespan so it's it's very important to know about this and hopefully yes regeneration will mantra that one (laughs) yes well you know in our our lifetimes look what we've seen happen i mean they've you know pretty much cured childhood leukemia you know there's so much dramatic dramatic changes in it. like st- now there's like the CRISPR being used for sickle cell anemia i mean some pretty oh. dramatic things have happened in a lifetime so i think we can be hopeful that there is a chance for people to regenerate cartilage but for now it, like for myself and many of the people i do know candace is that this can give you your life back it may not give you complete cure but it, it, i don't need a cure if i have function that's how i look at it Right. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. 
So I think that's what we're all hoping for is a, we talked about this in another um, episode we just did recently, what makes you have a happy menopause? What makes you have a happy life? I think all three of us would agree being functional, active, and, you know, having energy is really what it takes each day to get through and have a good life. Right. Absolutely. I agree 100% with that. Well, Dr. Riggs, thank you for spending so much time with us today. I know you have a very busy schedule with all that you do. It's been, uh, and I know that people are going to love hearing this. I think we're going to have more men listening now too, because this is a topic that really does extend to both sexes, you know, very much so. Right. Well, thank you so much for inviting me on your program. And if it even helps one person, you know, lead a healthier uh, life and regain function, reclaim their independence rather than kind of being limited or having their life hijacked by knee pain. Uh, it, it's well worth it. And it's been a pleasure speaking with both of you. You're both very knowledgeable, entertaining, and fun and engaging. I've had a great time with you. And I'll see yeah. you in January. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Thank you so much. And we'll and we'll be in touch. And uh, go out there, everybody. Be active. Eat well. And have a great life. Here we are at the end of this WTF, Women Talking Frankly, podcast episode. In signing off, we want you to remember that what you are feeling is not all in your head. And that you have so many options to choose from to get you back to balanced living. Until next time, be well. And remember, if you want a great life, you need to ask great questions. Be courageous. Ask for what you need. With love, Kyle and Candace.